Welcome to Nancy's Bookshelf, a weekly program of conversations with North State and national writers from North State Public Radio. Now here's your host, Nancy Wickman. Adoption is an enormous, complex topic. My guest today wrote a book about the impact of adoption on the life of the birth mother. Salona Raymond, writing under the name Lynn Raymond, shared her personal reflections as a mother united with a daughter she surrendered for adoption. Salona Raymond holds a PhD in psychology and is a retired licensed marriage and family therapist in Chico. For many years, she was a social worker and supervisor in children's services. When she was 46, Dr. Raymond had a reunion with her then 26-year-old daughter, and then she wrote Nurse Musings of a Ghost Mother. Salona Raymond, welcome. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you for having me. Now, I've never encountered the name Salona before. How did you come up with that name? Well, yes, the name change is interesting. I think Lynn was my name, which is a lovely name. I find it more suitable as a middle name. In any event, I think I'd always wanted something a little more zazzy, something with a little more flair. But my big sister had named me, so I really hadn't done that until she passed on. And that, um, and that was actually a time in my life when I was doing a lot of introspection, a lot of, you know, one of the issues, and the issues for birth mothers tend to be very similar to those of adoptees, um, adoptive parents, the, the identity piece, um, struggling with pretty much for all of my life, but especially after relinquishing my baby, it, it was really cataclysmic. I, I was going through a very, uh, yeah, just kind of an inward journey. And um, and my daughter was pregnant at the time, and our, our tradition um, follows um, kind of looking for names of ancestors or names of people dear to you. So I was looking through the um, this book of baby names, and, uh, and it had um, the English version, Lynn, and then it had a Hebrew version, which was Salona, and that was it. I was off to court. I had to have Salona. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that was about 15 years ago, I guess. So um, it's been nice. I thought people would find it silly or foolish or mock me, but most people have been very cooperative. And um, when I offer, when I go to order coffee, they'll say, oh, Salona. So, <laughs> so it's been kind of nice. <laughs> but that's the story. Uh, formerly Lynn, now Salona. My guest is Salona Raymond. And her book is Musings of a Ghost Mother. Now, you've used um, the term birth mother comes up so much in your story that um, maybe we should explain to listeners what is a birth mother? Thank you. We all know birth mothers, but we might not know we know both birth mothers because in the era that I relinquished, which was basically post-World War II until about 1973, uh, the United States had developed rather a social experiment with unwed mothers. Largely, these were largely white, middle-class unwed mothers. You know, the, eugen the eugenics movement had been very influential in the 20s. It just seeped into the culture, and we still see vestiges of good breeding and marrying the right person because they have good breeding. There was this real emphasis. And so if a, if a white middle-class girl got um, pregnant out of wedlock, it was seen as rather a scandal and as evidence of um, feeble-mindedness. So adoption was not such a big deal, stranger adoption back in the day. That all changed over the course of the 40s, post-World War II, 40s, 50s, that the road to rehabilitation and happiness for everyone was to sequester this scandalous girl away. And um, when she gives birth, we will have a lineup of proper people married who wanted babies. And so there was a real baby boom for adopt adoption. And um, 
Yeah, so ghost mother is very interesting. Well, birth mother, first of all. We don't really hear that term, I don't think, so much now. Because if a woman isn't married, she has a baby, she's just called a single parent or single mother. That was the shocker. Um, I gave, my daughter's name is Margreta. When I did my search, I I found out her father is Danish. So Margreta is a version of Margaret. And... um, Yes, yes, there were birth mothers, although again, pretty much hidden away, and we were uh, counseled to keep it on the down low. You know, you don't want to, you, you know, your parents are already wrecked, you've wrecked the family, and so typically you've been sent off into another community to live out the scandal, and then come home sans baby, because the baby has been relinquished. Um, Margreta was adopted when she was five days old. So you go through this experience and then you are supposed to come back into the world as if you've been on holiday, like nothing had happened. There are a lot of alibis. Well, where were you? Oh, I was visiting my aunt Teresa in Maine or something like that. So no, birth mother, uh, until the adoption reform movement came along, which was pretty much initiated by adult adoptees and birth mothers to say, hey, why are we in the closet? This was not a felony. Um, Really, it it was akin to to being a criminal. Uh, Maybe if you murdered somebody, that might be worse. But the the mentality of that time was this is scandalous, but there's a happy ending. This girl will find her mental, uh, eugenics had passed, let's just say. The thinking had passed. We were no longer um, feeble-minded. We were just neurotic or maybe slightly mentally ill. What you you say in your book, you say, my story is similar to those of millions of women who relinquished infants for adoption in a specific moment in this country's history. Mm -hmm. And we've seen that that, fortunately, I think, has changed. Yes. Uh, You say, still in the closet, countless middle-aged women hide the fact of a firstborn child relinquished to strangers to raise as their own. Now, you mention your baby's father, but only in passing. You don't really tell us about this person. And um, I, I realize that's not your your emphasis, but but we wonder, well, what did, who was this? <laughs> I assume he's a young man. The and uh, what did he do and how much of a role did he play in his right. daughter's life? So who was this young man, if you don't mind my asking? No, I'm open for any questions. Um, that was surprising. Uh, I Well, both she and I had registered like years earlier when she when she whoa 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 whoa, whoa. you oh. just i'm asking about her I dad know. her I biological know. father you notice how i don't want to talk about him um mm-hmm. yes, yes but i'm but i'm willing no i kind of set him aside we know the least about birth fathers we know the least because if birth mothers aren't talked about so thank you for bringing that up um yeah, we were in college. It was a very typical story. Uh, 18, 19 in college. Um, thought I was madly in love. Uh, got pregnant. He said, you'll give the baby up for adoption. I was kind of surprised. I, I guess I knew nothing about adoption. Or We were very young in those days. Uh, today, you know, the average 11 year old knows more about sex and marriage and all of that so in fact I don't think you even realized the symptoms or maybe you just didn't want to um, acknowledge the symptoms and and what what were your clues that you were pregnant oh vomiting Uh uh-huh yeah daily um daily vomiting and so um so the doctor's visit took care of that we confirmed that I was pregnant and as far as Norman goes, and then what did he say? Did he say, "Okay, now, now what? What did the doctor the doc, tell you?" Uh, the doc said, "Well, now I know you are a minor. I was nineteen. Yeah, we I wouldn't call you, you a minor today. A minor? No, you wouldn't be called a minor. You so I will have to tell your parents. Oh dear. So that's what he said, and then my." devout Catholic stepmother said, asked him, what about abortion? And he gasped. He said, that's a sin. 
not only against the law, but it's a sin. So I was set off on this adoption path from the get-go. Uh, in my head, I had a whole other scenario, lots of fantasies, you know, fantasy, reality, fantasy. But I was set on that adoption path pretty fast. And every adult I talked to, I went to the, I went to clergy people, um, you know, older, wiser people. You say that your stepmother, you tell us your stepmother's reaction. Yes. Uh, but you don't, at the time, you keep talking about your stepmother. And we, as reader, wonder, well, if it's her stepmother, what happened to her biological mother? Oh, well, yes, thank you. My mom died when I was six. Um, she died of, of uh, breast cancer. And uh, that was an interesting juncture, too, because again, back in the day, they really just didn't know how to grieve. And so I was told to be cheerful and not cry too much and just kind of move on. So I do think, and it's interesting in the literature, a lot of us were bereft of mothers. Um, so yeah, my mom died. Um, we moved from New York to Washington, DC. So that was another sort of split from the life I'd known. And, um, and my stepmom, I, I, you know, I do have compassion for her now more than maybe I did for a long I, time. I noticed the word now. You have compassion for her <laughs> yes. now. Yes, yes. Well, she's, she's, she's deceased. And um, I, I think I've, I've just, since the book, during the book, since the book, I've becoming a therapist and thinking I needed therapy before I took on clients. So doing a lot of, a lot of introspection and that kind of work. Well, I want to go back to um, the fact that the doctor tells you, okay, uh, now you, since you're a minor, he called you a minor. Yes. Uh, I'm going to have to tell your parents or else you better tell them. Oh yeah. But then your parents don't tell anybody. And they don't want anybody to know. They certainly don't want their neighbors to know. So what I'd like you to do, if you don't mind, is read from your book what happened when this neighbor saw you in the fifth month of your pregnancy. Yes, it was right before they had to get me out quickly because um, I was going into a um, Florence Crittenden home for unwed mothers. And um, I was, you know, five months, you're getting a little chubby. So this is my uh, chapter called Interlude. I don't recall how it was that a neighbor caught a glimpse of me in my fifth month of pregnancy, just prior to entering the board and wage home where my condition would be observed only by complete strangers. I had quit my clerical job at an insurance company with a feigned excuse about a family crisis in another state and had remained hidden for the most part in my parents' apartment. In any event, a woman whom I had known casually from the building greeted me and invited me to her unit to look over some maternity clothes she was willing to share. Inarticulate and unassertive, I accepted the clothing passively and fearfully. How would I explain to my parents the acquisition of this wardrobe? My stepmother had coached me to tell anyone who asked about my absent husband, a story which, as I recall, had to do with his being away in the Navy. I remember wearing a cheap wedding band. I returned home laden with maternity blouses and skirts, furtive and quiet, but unable to sneak into my room undetected. My stepmother furiously demanded to know where the clothing had come from. In a rage that the secret might be revealed and that I had talked to someone and accepted a few minutes of kindness, she ordered me to return everything. I gathered the clothing up, knocked on the neighbor's door, stammered an apology, and left. I still see the sad and bewildered look on her face as she moved to close the door behind me. This is my guest, Salona Raymond. She was writing this book under the name Lynn Raymond, and the title of her book is Musings of a Ghost Mother. We'll be back to continue our conversation after a short break. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman.
I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm back with my guest, retired marriage and family therapist, Salona Raymond, whose book is Musings of a Ghost Mother. And you just told us what happened when you were pregnant enough that you needed maternity clothes, and this very kind neighbor offered them to you, but your stepmother was furious. And so now... um, you are in Washington, D.C., and uh, you uh, wanted to be rescued from your situation. Uh, tell us about that, or just read us about this fantasy that you have. Yes. And this is shortly after you had to return the maternity clothes. Yes. I was quite the 50s girl in many ways. You know, my childhood was in the 50s, and there were so many romantic films and songs and uh yeah so this is what I did you know I I was back and forth um didn't have any kind of a plan about realistically maybe being able to keep her so doubt but doubt lingered well you couldn't even go into this uh the name of the place was the Florence Crittenden home for unwed mothers It it was so full that you couldn't even get in there until you were seven months pregnant. Exactly. So in the interim, I had mentioned the board and wage home. There was a system. We were sort of like criminal nannies or something. We would be placed with a family that needed somebody to do childcare. How ironic, since we were all discouraged from doing exactly that with our own babies. And so I did. I went to Alexandria, Virginia. Yeah. And I was set up with um, a family with five kids. And I got 20 bucks a week and a room. And it was not a nightmare. They were nice people, but it was a nightmare because of my my emotional, my emotional self. And so they did, they paid you $20 a week uh, in return for childcare and light housekeeping. That's and right. then that payment would allow you to pay for the services of the home you were going to. Exactly. Yes. I saved every penny. So you, you got there, this was you mentioned in the early, well, 60s. This yeah. was January of 1964 right. that you got to this place. And um, and your roommate, a girl your age, and she was a little further along in her pregnancy. Yes. And she was uh, getting ready to go into this home. And she introduced you to your responsibilities and the things you'd have to be doing. Um, and it's interesting, her reaction because you had reservations and you wondered, how can a person give up her baby? And wouldn't the baby feel rejected by that mother? And your roommate was just, well, she's relinquishing that baby because that was the best possible thing to do for that child. She later changed her tune as you found out. Yes, yes, she found a man. <laughs> My original question then yeah. I was asking about uh, when you would you were living there in Washington and you yes. were out in a suburb and you ride the bus into the city. Would you read that section in your book, Salona? Sure, yes. I rode the bus into the city on days off. I imagined being rescued by a man who would fall madly in love with me and thus smitten would insist on marriage and helping me raise the baby. I daydreamed and wandered through the baby apparel sections of department stores, certain that the pretend wedding band on my left ring finger would fool observers into believing I was a properly married young woman. Back and forth, the reality, the fantasy, the reality. Eventually I faced the facts. No one would rescue me. No one would magically appear to change my circumstances and help me create a stable, loving home for this child. There was no network of caring people to help. It would have been perhaps very much like the home I grew up in. My vision of the future looked like a recreation of the lonely life I'd had as a child. I pictured a grim and stigmatized existence for the two of us. And then uh, the social workers and your roommate and uh, society, yeah. uh, you say by your sixth month, you had internalized what you were hearing. Absolutely. Quote, the only loving and responsible decision for an unwed girl with no resources, resources is to relinquish the baby for adoption to people who can provide a stable home and far better life than you can give. And yeah. you say that you had internalized that so well that you repeated it to yourself. 
for decades after surrendering your baby, even after the baby was born, you kept telling yourself, well, that, that was the best decision. But then you wonder, well, when is a decision not a decision? And what did you think on that subject? What I said in my book is that I think a genuine decision involves explorations of all options and the consequences of each. It also includes having knowledge of and access to resources. In 1964, the options for the typical white middle-class girl were limited to either marriage or relinquishment. Once an adoptive home was found, even the former possibility appeared to threaten the system called neatly in place by counseling that served as a directive to put the child up for adoption. And then you say you had contacted the baby's father uh, late in the pregnancy, and he actually came to visit you in the maternity home. Yes, he did. And so we're reading along, we're thinking, oh, how nice. Maybe he'll um, step up to the plate and be a father to this baby. Yeah, you know, we all want a happy adoption story. Um, You know, we just see lots of happy adoption stories, and I do think my book sheds more of a light on the dark side because yeah once once you were signed up with it with a it was the child and family services in dc and once once you entered that home you were given that baby up there was no there was no countenance for the notion of keeping because look at you you're 19, you're kind of stupid for getting pregnant, you're probably neurotic and maybe a little crazy. You're going to be a mother? You know, prior to the 40s, if you got pregnant, you were kind of a mother already. And the maternity homes back then enforced that. They, they enforced breastfeeding to encourage the bond. All of that changed. All of that changed in my era. Well, you know, that social worker there was uh, you said she was generally affable and pleasant, yes. but a year this the baby's father comes to visit, and she said, "You write that she cast you an angry look, and rising in her chair loudly said, "Not this baby you want if you want to be with him and have another child, go ahead, but you won't be with him and this child exactly so that was pretty harsh. There you are by yourself anyway, and you can't even rely on the social worker to provide uh, loving support. No, the prospective adopters um, have the power. They, they, um, well, you know, they're paying. They're, you know, back then, the adoption is like night and day from back then, and it's still terrible, but in very different ways. But back then, uh, yeah, alone is right. Alone is right. Yep. Yeah. Well, we want to know then. So you have the baby, you give the baby up for adoption, uh-huh. years pass, and you don't forget this baby, but you don't know what's happened to her. How can you reconnect? How did you find your daughter? I found my daughter after thinking about finding my daughter, doing that back and forth thing until she turned 18. And I had a talk with myself. And it was something like, Lynn, um, you, you have to know, you have to know, you have to answer her questions. What in this day and age, because the whole world had changed, there were single mothers, not unwed mothers. There were you know, couples living together, which had been scandal back when I was younger. Anyway, so when she was 18, I figured, you know, she may really need to know some things. How would I make sense if I was a young woman, I'd been given away at birth uh, and with a closed system where there's no information, no dialogue. Um, Her folks told her she was adopted and then that was kind of it. There were no more questions. So I, I registered with an agency that is still in existence. I think they're saints. Anyway, so I registered with International Soundex which is um, a registry where parties send in whatever information they know about the person they're looking for. So they were um, very active in, in no computers back then. So everything was card files and, and uh, folders. And so I've always thought it's a miracle that they put us together. And the reader might wonder, well, 
might wonder, well, Solana, did you go back to the Florence Crittenden Home for Unwed Mothers? Uh -huh. Maybe they could help you make that connection? Were yeah. they any help? Well, you know, and this could be another whole hour, the issue of sealed records. And most states actually still have sealed records where the adult adoptee really has no right to her birth certificate or his birth certificate, um, any identifying information. And so I did contact the agency. And um, of course, oh, I put, I, I wrote them twice. I have my, all my papers. And I said, if my daughter ever shows up, please send her to me. I want to answer. I had this whole list of things I wanted to let her know. And they said, yes, we'll put it in the file. I learned years later that she'd gone to the agency and they said, sorry, files are closed. Um, so the secret of, I, there's a, there was a great English movie called Secrets and Lies. And it was about an adoption in, in England um, which tried closed records, tried, tried the closeness for a while, and then said, this system is terrible. No, many casualties. So, um, so it's about an older adult who goes to find her records and then finds her birth mother. But secrets and lies is, I'm so sorry, but adoption is just riddled with ethical and moral issues that could take up your time forever and I've forgotten the question <laughs> well we were wondering how you went about reconnecting or with oh, your daughter and okay. you you registered with this agency yes. and then what okay so she was 18 when I registered she had registered too because she'd been looking all her life unlike many adoptees who say they're not interested don't care she didn't want me that can change too, by the way. But anyway, so she was 18, she was 26, as you'd mentioned, when we found each other. And it was a phone call. She was living back in West Virginia. And uh, then we met in April. And, and getting back to the birth father, I guess that I was really surprised. I sort of forgotten. I put it away. I didn't forget, but I said, oh. And I did a really, I thought, admirable job of. Um, promoting probably some of his better qualities. I did warn her though. I gave her everything I could remember, his birth, you know, his name, birth date. And um, she's a, an excellent sleuth. So it took her about a year, but she found Norman and he put her off for about a year. So not too much had changed. And so then she drove to his house in another town and I uh, left him, <laughs> left a picture of her and her baby. And uh, yeah, it took him a while, but, um, now she just thinks he's great. And uh, I just try to just kind of not say I don't. Well, one of the, and I'm sure you appreciated this, but we as a reader got to know what your daughter was feeling because she wrote them down. Yes. And you say your daughter's been a writer and poet from childhood. Yes. She kept diaries, journals, pictures, and poems that ah. she shared with you. And so you have this neatly penned letter uh -huh. a three ring binder and you get to read what your daughter was thinking and she signs it your forgotten daughter yes. which was what it appeared to her but you certainly had not forgotten her no. and then um you had this rather long letter to my mom that was written only if only months earlier when she was pregnant during her own pregnancy she was writing you this long letter and signs it well she says can you hear me your daughter of long ago. And I'm sure you treasure this letter of what she was feeling because you had no idea until you reconnected with her. You had no idea how she was feeling. And she actually wrote this down and uh, has a record of what she was feeling and that she had not forgotten you. And she just said um, that she really wanted to talk to you. And she's signed one of them. I hope I haven't wrecked your life. Yes. Touching. Oh, my God. She was so sensitive. Yes. Yeah. You know, um, you are absolutely right. I have a big chest now of all her letters. <laughs> you know, I have pre-meeting and post-meeting. And yeah, um, we met. Uh, my husband is still alive then. And he... He said, yeah, I'll meet you. He was out of town. He said, I'll meet you in West Virginia. And so, because she, she had said, I don't care what time of day or night. 
I, you just call me when you get here to Morgantown. So, no, I did. It was about midnight and I called and Tony had his little camera and. No, who is Tony? Oh, oh, sorry. My, my husband. Yeah. Tony died a few years ago, but he was with me on this ride. I mean, from the get go, he was such a support and, and he just kind of fell in love with her too. I mean, when she opened the door and I saw this beautiful young woman and wow and she said she said we we look alike I have your smile or you have my smile or whatever she said and we hugged and it was like this six-month honeymoon of just pure joy and um yeah that reunions are a topic in and of themselves and and again everybody wants happy reunion stories and i'm telling you it can be tough uh there's a lot there's a lot because you're sort of two regressed people it's as though you know you're seeing this 26 year old girl who is a wailing infant really who hasn't had her needs met all that time and you see sort of a befuddled 19 year old in this 46 year old body going oh my god you know all the everything but ultimately, we, we, we've written it out and we are still, we're really good now. Uh, she's back in Tennessee now and she visits and I've gone there and uh, my subsequent kids have met her. So, um, now you just mentioned your subsequent children and yes, um, yes. this is all a very happy occasion reuniting with your daughter. I might remind listeners that um, my guest is Salona Raymond and she wrote her book under the name Lynn Raymond. The title of her book is Musings of a Ghost Mother. Now, you mentioned subsequent children, and we were saddened as a reader to learn what happened to uh, a young a baby boy that you had. What happened, Salona? Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, so, and just getting back to the literature, it would appear that half of us bad girls uh, never had another baby out of loyalty to the first child or just couldn't do it for lots of reasons. And the other half of us just kept, just kept having babies. Sometimes when you don't work out your issues and what happened and all that, you just repeat your behavior. So, um, so I got pregnant, but I got properly married this time. And um, yeah, we had a little boy and I was really, that's like the first memory of being happy again. Like this little cute fuzzy haired boy and um, and he died when he was um, a little over a month old. Uh, I found him in his crib dead. You know what, Salona? Um, reading this, that what happened to you, has given me the courage, to, and I don't know if that's the word, to ask uh, my brother and my dear sister-in-law lost a child right after birth. And I've always wanted, uh, I wasn't physically near where they were, but I never wanted to bring the, the subject because I thought that's probably too painful for them to talk about. But after reading your book, I'm thinking maybe they would be willing to talk about that. Yeah, that's that's such a question. You're a therapist, so I'm asking I know. <laughs> a question as a therapist. So. Yeah. My point of view is that information sharing tends to be helpful, even if at first it's, well, I don't want to talk about that. Or, and then you just back up. Listen, you know, you could explain the context of why you, like, you hadn't forgotten. <laughs> and, uh, and I, 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 you know, we, we do what, what we need to do. But my, my hunch is to check it out a little bit. Because that is, yeah, you lose, yeah, that loss is forever. And, um, and it's like adoption. You know, when you start talking about adoption, that is so hidden. I've had people come up to me and say, oh, um, my husband was adopted and I'm, it's making a little bit more sense to me. A lot of, a lot of his issues around, you know, trust and intimacy and sharing. Yeah, well, uh, reading your book helps us as non-adoptive um, parents or, or um, to know how do we react to somebody who has gone through this? And you think, well, somebody in your situation, therapy, that's the thing to do, go to therapy. But what happens to birth mothers who do yeah. seek out a therapist? 
I hope it's changed. Um, this all came about because I was curious about these things as you are now. And I uh, did some research and I interviewed 56 women, either through questionnaires or phone calls and did, a, did my study. And um, yeah, the part about counseling was disappointing. That was very heartbreaking. Either the therapist, and again, I, I would hope in 20 some years, this is different. The therapist didn't pick up the ball. Somebody might say, you know, I, I, I lost my first baby to adoption and there would just be silence like, okay, or moving right along or, um, and of course some women don't mention it even if they're in therapy. So it's, you know, it's kind of okay. And you fact, you say that uh, birth mothers routinely were told uh, in that time, and that in time, uh, you'd forget having given up this baby. Sometimes. And yeah. uh, life would resume normally. You'd be perfect. Rosie. Yeah, exactly. And that causes additional problems when a woman is ready to share, to talk, to do whatever. And she can't remember the date of the baby's birth. She's put it so far down. I think for most of us that, that day, always, we just jump off the calendar, but so shamed. And it was such the double message. You are doing a beautiful sacrifice. You are doing the best thing for this child. Isn't it wonderful? And then you return to the real world and people are horrified if you mention it. So, so you And you say that you made a study, um, birth mothers, and you say that the birth mothers who participated in your study overwhelmingly found individual therapy sought years after relinquishment, uh -huh. a disappointing, ineffective, or even hurtful exercise. Yes. So that's sad. But now you do say individual therapy. So what about group therapy? Um, I think for perhaps the majority, well, I don't know how do you know these things, but I think that's probably very useful. I, I found a, a support group and it kind of got me rolling. It wasn't my thing really because it just wasn't to continue, but it was very helpful just to be in a room of people with other women right here in my hometown, other women who went on. Um, that's helpful. I, I went to one um, therapy session that was, uh, that was given by um, a marriage and family therapist. It was called a healing workshop. And I came away kind of uh, traumatized so I would just say, maybe talk to somebody who's you know, done that before, uh, know what to watch out for. I was, she was, my goodness, it's probably projection, but she was a lot like my stepmother. Uh, it was very shaming and um, kinda had to recover from that. I just remember thinking, if I had done this 10 years ago, I'd be, I'd just be a wreck. So you gotta be careful. Um, and now there is much more openness. Well, you know, I was I was just saying that um, some of us who are not involved in any way with birth mothers or adoption, uh -huh. that we assume that. For example, I'm assuming, well, I don't know any of you now, but I don't know any birth mothers or people who gave up their children for adoption. Mm -hmm. But then I thought, maybe I do. Oh, Nancy, you do. There's too many of us. Yeah. You know, I mean, we're talking millions of girls in that era we're talking and don't talk about it and put it away and some of us good girls tried very hard to comply with that but it doesn't work because there it is and I and I know I mean I know of women who are birth mothers but never ever talked maybe they told their husband one time and that's it or um yeah yeah so we all know birth mothers without knowing birth mothers it's very interesting after break, I'll be continuing my conversation with Dr. Salona Raymond, and her book is Musings of a Ghost Mother. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman.
I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm back with my guest, Salona Raymond, and she's been telling us about the daughter she gave up for adoption in her book, Musings of a Ghost Mother. Well, one adoptive parent that I know, um, it happens to be, he's a um, Saturday morning host on NPR, Scott uh, Simon, uh, uh, a very lovely man, and he and his wife adopted from China. Uh-huh. And what do you think about that, Salona? Well, I'm pretty clear in my book about my biases, and um, and this is no disrespect to anybody in the triad. I, I think adoptive parents who understand the issues and I, I think they're they're wonderful, but in general terms, I think international adoption creates a situation where the child not only has lost the the, the original family but the culture, and and I think aware adoptive parents take care of that pretty well. Well, now um, I think uh, just because I talked to Scott Simon, I interviewed mm-hmm. him when he wrote his book. And he seems mm-hmm. such a sensitive person that I'm sure he felt he was doing the right thing. Absolutely. Even toward the end of the interview, he started, he teared up. Yeah. And I'm sure he thought he was doing the right thing. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I think that, although in my book, I quote, um, you know, some of the cynicism that goes with um, avoiding domestic birth parents well we thought we'd do with the international because then we wouldn't have to deal with the birth parents you know so so sometimes it's very sincere and beautiful and meaningful um intent and sometimes not so much because then you're going to raise your child without information which is like a closed domestic adoption where the kids become very confused um and you know so there's Adoption comes in many, many forms, and I just say, if if you if that if you want to adopt a baby, learn about learn about the issues, learn about the seven core issues of trust and intimacy and relationship. Yeah, it's much more complicated than yeah, that. yeah. And today, most of the adoptions are not done by the government, as was the case in my day. But um, lawyers, I, yeah, lawyers lawyers who know so much about adoption issues and are so sensitive to all of that. No, now it's a money-making game. Adoption is a billion dollar a year industry and the paying consumers are the ones that they want to please. So I know there there are services for birth parents, but I'm a little bit cynical about who, who gets the royal treatment and who doesn't so much. They get to choose, they go through books and such, but, um, I think the exceptional people who get adoption are the perfect adoption, adoptive parents. They get it. Well, I mentioned that you are in through your book are helping those of us who don't know, we might know uh-huh. adoptive or um, birth mothers. Uh, we learn how we can best be supportive. And as years go by, you, I get the, uh, the impression that, um, you can't really have forgiveness as a goal, if say in your situation as a birth mother, mm-hmm. that forgiveness is maybe not realistic, but what do you suggest instead? I suggest acceptance. Um, I think there's a lot of pressure in our culture to forgive, to you know, all that. I think that places a real burden on somebody who feels torn apart. And so for me at least, I realized that I was angrier when I wrote the book. I've, I've, you know, I mean, you know, life changes us as we evolve, hopefully. But I do know I had a lot of rage to the system primarily because adoptive parents, you know, they can be, they can be misused as well. Um, there are shady adoptions and people, it's not, yeah, get some, there's some wonderful books on ethical adoption. So I, I would I would suggest that. For me, it was acceptance like, look, my parents were of their generation. This was a scandal. Um, you know, let it go. Um, the age, I, I, I still harbor ill will um, toward the agencies, but a lot of those social workers have also recognized that the system was terrible. And I'm sure they, you know, I was a social worker. I I might have hurt people. I hope not, but I certainly might have. 
in, in, you know, good faith, trying to do my job. So, you know, none of us are totally innocent. I'm totally guilty. I can accept that. I can accept that, you know, maybe bigger view. I, and if you want to forgive, that's cool. I'm not, I'm not saying don't, but, but I think when that's, when that's um, kind of coerced, I think, um, which I think, I think our culture does that. Oh, move on. They did the best they could, you know, all that. The book I've been asking about, uh, Musings of a Ghost Mother, that you wrote under the name Lynn Raymond, now Salona Raymond. Yes. And uh, your book is about reuniting with the daughter you surrendered for adoption, and you found out your daughter had a child, so you were a grandmother. <laughs> but um, there's, we as a reader want to know, well, what, what about where the book ended? Then what? Yeah. What has happened? Yeah, that was then. that was sneaky of me. I think it <laughs> ended <laughs> mostly because I wanted my daughter Margreta to be okay with the book, and um, reunion is powerful. It's uh, and I guess I just didn't want to get into both of our stuff as a couple. Um, and I did, and I, and I asked her permission to use her letters. And that's the part of the book that really seems to grip people the most. They're like, oh my God, that girl. So I, I chose to leave it there. And, and I sort of have thought of, you know, some sort of a follow-up, but, but, um, but that's why I, I left it. And, and I'm happy to talk about it. It's not that, you know, I really, the last 23 years, I guess that's not, how long have we been reunited? I don't know, 30 years? Because she had just had her baby, who's now 30. So we've been wow. reunited a long time, and I'm really fine talking about it. Well, you mentioned, um, you telling your book about going to visit your daughter where she lived. Right. And so we might wonder, well, does your daughter come out to see you here, particularly now with you have new challenges that you're facing right now. I don't know if you yes. want to, to yes. tell about those. Well, Would you mind telling us? No. Um, and I love that question. Um, yeah, I have late stage um, pancreatic cancer. I was just dismissed from Enlo and now I'm at hospice. Who are, they're lovely people. I still feel good, as you can probably tell. Uh, but it seems to be traveling all about uh, their out of treatment options and um, I'm just grateful that they brought me some meds yesterday. That was great. I, I slept for the first time really well. I thought I might be sleepy, but I'm energized. You asked such good questions. And the last one was the visit. Yes. First, I visited Margreta back in Morgantown. Then, um, and she came out here and met my, you know, her brother and sisters and my, well, she knew Tony, my husband already from our first trip. And then there were a couple of more trips back, a couple of more back and forth, back and forth a few times over the years. Um, my, all of my other children went to visit her. And um, so, so that was sweet. Um, I can't even say enough about the children I raised. I mean, they are phenomenal because I know I know this had to be pretty jolting into their little lives. But the last time we met was actually last month. Margreta, first of all, we were pretty, she had her own tragedy. Her son died when he was 19 and she sort of disappeared for a couple of years. But when my husband died, she- Which was in, I might add in 2019. Yes, yes, died. 2019. She just showed up again and all of a sudden wanted to connect. And then when I told her my cancer diagnosis, she, she hopped on a plane, I'm coming out. So um, she had come out two years ago with one of her, her, her surviving son. And um, so this time she came out with her two surviving kids and she had COVID. And so she felt real bad about that. But we met outside a lot when she stayed at a hotel and we met a lot on their um, outdoor, they have a nice huge patio with masks. So we made it work. But um, yeah, I would say now is our golden time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I would like to ask you if you have any concluding advice or hope what we learned from reading your books. Yeah, I, in, in terms of adoption per se, 
I would say know that it's complicated. I might have irritated listeners today because I'm telling my story and their stories might be very different and to respect that. And that's been a challenge for me to hear other stories that don't quite comport with my experience. So I, I think for all of us to be open, be sensitive, um, you know, there's closed adoption, open adoption, um, transracial adoption, uh, international. Um, and, I, and again, I guess to end, I'm just very, very grateful um, when you called and I thought, well, it's been 20 years since I wrote that book, what will I say? And you have asked some wonderful questions. Thank you. And thank you for listeners who have been hanging in. And thank you for helping those of us listeners and readers for better understanding what a birth mother goes through and her family. Thank you, Salona. My guest has been Salona Raymond. She was a uh, licensed marriage and family therapist, and she wrote her book under the name Lynn Raymond. The title of her book, Musings of a Ghost Mother. listening to Nancy's Bookshelf, a production of North State Public Radio. You can find this and other episodes of Nancy's Bookshelf on our website, mynspr.org.